today was like Chris, was going to be like Christmas to me. Uh, you guys know that I love to teach, and uh, today was a special day for me. I, I get to teach three times today. I get to teach Sunday school here this morning, and then I'm going to Crawfordville First Baptist, and I'm going to preach at 11, and then I'm going to go back tonight and preach at 6, or teach at 6. So this was like, I've been looking forward to this day all week, and uh, so, I mean, it's just like, woo, you know. And I would be dead gum if I didn't walk out of the, uh, and get in the car and forget my computer. I mean, I was so worried about, I made, made sure I had my sermon, made sure I had, I had a book I was going to give to Mama. I got it all in the car, and I get here, and I open the back door, and there's no computer. And Kathy's like, do you want me to go get it? I'm like, well, by the time you get back to the house and get back here, we'll be halfway done. So I'm going to teach today completely from memory. I don't have any notes. I don't have anything. Um, so we'll take about 30 minutes just to read the scripture, and then we'll... <laughs> We'll go. All right, if you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. So this will be a little bit different. I'll try to remember everything I, I put down. And, and in fact, that's one of the reasons I use the PowerPoint, because it reminds me, right, from slide to slide what I want to say. And so I don't miss anything. I don't, I don't leave anything out. So anyway, we'll do the best we can. Luke chapter 7, and uh, we're going to begin in verse 31. And we'll read all the way down um, to verse uh, 35. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? In fact, somebody, anybody's got a, a phone, do me a favor, because I can't remember now because I had it written down. This parable is told two places. It's told in Luke and it's told in Matthew. Somebody, huh? Uh, children in the marketplace. All right, Matthew 11. So if you got your Bible, flip over. Matthew 11. All right, Matthew 11, 16 to 24. Actually, let's do that. See, we already made a mistake. All right, it's found two places. It's found in Luke and it's found in Matthew. We're going to use Matthew this morning. I knew I, I went back and forth between the two. Um, we'll, start in verse, uh, we'll start in verse 16. Jesus is speaking and he says this, But to what shall I compare this generation? This is the parable of the children in the marketplace. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, well, he's got a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, I want to start out this morning by reminding of everybody of something. Um, when the Word of God goes out, uh, like I say, today I, I, get to, I get to teach three times. Um, and I'm going to teach to three different audiences. And, 
And when the Word of God goes out, two things are going to happen. Either people are going to accept it, hear it, and accept it, or they're going to hear it and reject it. That, that always happens. You, you have a choice to hear this morning. When you hear the Word and you hear the explanation for this parable, when you, when you sit later on under, under, and Pastor Henry preaches, you're going to have a choice. Do you accept it? Do you act on it? Because accepting it means more than just mentally saying, yeah, I agree with you. If you say, yeah, I agree with you, and you walk out and don't do anything, then in, then in essence, you've rejected it, have you not? It's easy to say, yeah, I agree with you. Amen. Preach it, brother. But it's a whole other ballgame to say, I'm going to walk out of here and apply that to my life. I'm going to make it real. That's what I mean. So you've got two choices. You can accept it and apply it, or you can hear it and say, you know what? That was a nice message, or that has, but it really has nothing to do with me, and you can reject it. Those two things always happen. Now, that doesn't mean, and I want to remind everybody, that doesn't mean the Word of God ever returns void. You see, the Bible tells us, the, I believe it's in Isaiah, uh, he, he says, my word does not come back to me void. It always accomplishes my purpose. Which means that sometimes the word is going out and it's bringing forth fruit in somebody's life. Is it not? I've, it's done it in my life. But other times, Jesus, remember Jesus said, he said, I'm not going to judge you. The words that I speak will judge you in the last day. Yes or no? See, so sometimes the word of God is going out for judgment. It goes out, it's heard, it's rejected, and then that word, I mean, it accomplished its purpose. Its purpose on that day was judgment. And in the, end, in the last days, it will come back and Jesus will say, you know what, you heard that word. That word was right, the truth was right in front of you and, and you rejected it. Now, I bring that up because this is what Matthew chapter 11 is really all about. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and you start reading... Matthew 1 through 10, Matthew's telling all about Jesus. It's, it's about revealing Jesus, who he is. I, he goes, uh, you know, from his birth all the way up uh, to his ministry. So if you just read the first 10 chapters, it's about Jesus, 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 who he is, what he's doing, where, all the things about him. But as you come to Matthew chapter 11, it kind of switches around. And Matthew chapter 11 begins a couple of chapters where it's all about the response to Jesus. And in fact, if you go back up to verse 1, Matthew 11, the first response we see in Matthew 11 is what I would call honest doubt. That's the first response to Jesus is honest doubt. And we find that in, of all people, John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist is, is, this, is this guy, right? And, and he's out in the wilderness with camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. And, and he says, Jesus walks by one day and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, he must increase and I must decrease. But, but several months later or whatever the time frame, he finds himself in prison, does he not? And he begins to doubt. He begins to have some honest doubt. And he actually sends some of his disciples to Jesus and, he, and they ask him, are you really the one? Are you really the one? And of course, Jesus responds and said, go tell John what you see. The dead rise, the, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Right? Of course I'm the one. But there was some honest doubt there. And, and by the way, Jesus said of John the Baptist, anybody remember what they said of him? There's not a greater man has walked this earth than John the Baptist. I mean, he was a great man, but he had honest doubt. And, and that's okay. Everybody experiences some honest doubt 
from, from time to time. But as we come here later on chapter 11, as we come down to verse 16, he begins to address a different kind of response to Jesus. And that is criticism and indifference. Let's read again, starting in verse 16. Jesus says this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. All right, so what's he talking about? Well, in ancient Palestine, in Palestine of that day, every village, every town, every city, whatever you want to call it, had an area that they called, in the Greek it was called the Agora. And that literally means marketplace. It was the center of town. And once a week or whatever the time frame was, uh, the people of, of the town or people in the surrounding areas would bring their booths, they'd bring their little tents and they would set them up and they would sell their wares, right? So they would sell and trade or barter or whatever they, whatever they did in that day. And so the marketplace was really the center of town. It was the center of activity. So you can imagine on, let's say it was on a, on a Friday or a Thursday, whatever the day was, all the people come into town, they set up their tents in this marketplace, and of course, if the parents come, who's going to come with them? The children are going to come. And children in that day do exactly, you know, this is what I, remember I say this all the time, people don't change, right? The people 2,000 years ago are just like us. They have the same fears, the same shame, the same regret, the same doubts, the same everything. We're, human beings are human beings. That's why the Bible is, is so practical for us today, even though it was written 2,000 years ago. And by the way, children in that day are just like children today, are they not? You put a bunch of kids together, what are they going to do? They're going to play. And in fact, the marketplace was this wide open area. And, and, and so even when they weren't in town, even when all the parents hadn't come in and set up their tents, children would still use it as it was a great place to play their games. It was a great place to play. So, so the children were always in the marketplace. You would always find them there playing their games and doing the things that they do. Now the question we would ask would be something like this. Well, what kind of games did they play in that day? Well, keep in mind, they don't have no TV, right? They don't have phones, they don't have video games, they don't have electronics, they don't have any of those type of things, right? They don't have really toys other than something that somebody makes. We're talking about 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine. So what kind of games would they play? Well, they would probably play games like tag and hide and seek and things that, that kids have probably played for, for millennia. But two of the games that might surprise you that they played is they would play weddings and funerals. Now, you may say, well, <laughs> that makes no sense. Why would they play weddings and funerals? Well, you have to put yourself back in their day, right? Keep, keep in mind, back in there, that was a hard life, was it not? I mean, it was an agrarian society. Remember in the parable of the vineyards, their work day was from 6 in the morning to 6 at night, 6 days a week. They got the Sabbath off, but other than that, you work 12-hour days every day. You cut your own firewood, you washed your clothes in the creek. I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a hard life, and it was a very mundane life. There wasn't, you didn't go to the movies, there wasn't, you couldn't sit down and watch Netflix, and you had none of that kind of stuff. I mean, when it got dark, you ate and went to bed and got up at daylight and started all over again. So it ends up, there are two social events in that day 
that kind of broke up the monotony. There were two social events that ended up kind of being a, a big deal. And that was what? Weddings and funerals. You know, weddings in that day uh, were, again, a very big deal, right? I mean, you, we've, we've got, you know, Jesus goes to, that, to the wedding at Cana, and they've got big water things full of wine, and there's, there's dancing. It was a celebration. It would last up to a week. They would have a procession through town with the bride and the groom and, and, the, and the, 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 the best men and the, and the, and the uh, ladies-in-waiting or whatever they called them back then. And all the people would be dancing. And, and just, it was just a huge celebration that would go on and on and on, sometimes for five to seven days. It, it, just, it, was, a, it was a way they celebrated life. It broke up their monotony. And funerals were, by the way, which were just as common, if not more common, than, than weddings. Funerals were the same thing. Funerals, you know, we tend to make funerals today kind of a you know, fairly solemn affair in our, in our culture. But back then, it wasn't that way at all. You know, Jesus, there's a one, you remember, I believe it was the widow of Nain. Was it Nain, N-A-I-N? I think it was. He goes into this town called Nain. And as he's coming into town, there's a procession coming out of town. And it says a great crowd. They were carrying the, the, the young man in the casket on their shoulders. And there's this huge crowd of, of people. You remember when the, the ruler asked Jesus, come to my, my daughter's sick? Y'all remember that story? And see, I got all these scriptures on my computer, but, but I don't have them in front of me, so I'm just going to have to paraphrase. But the ruler asked Jesus, come to my house, my daughter is sick. And when Jesus gets there, there's this great, in, in, in the scripture it says a great commotion. He saw the flute players. That's what he says. He sees the flute players. He sees all the women making commotion. What does that mean? Well, in that day, they would actually go out and hire Jewish women to mourn. And so these women would, 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 would wail and lament and, and make all this noise. You see this a lot if you ever see on the TV in the Middle East today, they still do that, right? When somebody dies, they just make this huge commotion. It's just part of their, part of their culture. So, so you can see that, that a, a funeral like that ended up, they hired flute players. And by the way, when, and when you sang a song at a funeral, it was called a dirge. It's a funeral song. It's a song of wailing and moaning and, and, and lament. And so they would just have this, a funeral was a big deal. I mean, they'd have a procession through town. You can imagine all these women are just wailing and moaning. The flute players are playing and all this great commotion is going on. And guys, listen, kids would find that absolutely fascinating. Would they not? I mean, here's this mundane life and you have a wedding. I mean, I mean kids would see that and they'd be like, man, they couldn't wait to get home and, and, and play that, Right? Um, or, or they'd see a funeral, and we would see a funeral and say, you know, somebody died, and the kids would just think, man, this this, this, this got to be great fun. Let's go do this. And that's exactly what they would do because they emulate what they see, do they not? That's what kids do. They, they play act. They emulate, you know, uh, my granddaughter's two years old, and one of the things as you watch her grow that I really didn't, I was telling somebody yesterday, I didn't appreciate when, I think when your kids are young, you're just so busy with life, aren't you? You just, you just, you're, you're working and you're just trying to make ends meet and, and, and it just goes by like that. You don't stop and appreciate things. And one of the great things about grandchildren is that you kind of, now you've got time to say, okay, let's slow this down a little bit. And, and, and so we've watched her and she's just started playing with little, her little people and she'll talk to them. This one will talk to that one and this one will talk to that one. And, 
I mean, the brain is just an amazing thing to watch it develop and all that. But that's what kids do. They emulate. How do they know what this says to that? Because of what you say, right? They watch adults. And so Jesus, let's read that again, knowing that. Let's go back and read it. Jesus says, what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and they call to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You see, any of us that's ever been kids know what I'm about to say is true. There's always somebody that don't want to play the game that you're playing. Isn't that true? You see, that's what these kids are saying. Hey, let's play the wedding game. Let's play the happy game. No, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, let's play, the, let's play the sad game. Let's play the funeral game. No, I don't want to do that. See, there's always somebody, there's always some kid that no matter what you say, well, let's do this. No, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, let's do this. No, I don't want to do that. They're never satisfied. In fact, they're not just never satisfied. Sometimes it seems like they're impossible to satisfy. Now, let's go back to uh, verse 18. And this is the application. Jesus is actually going to apply this right here. He says this, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, what you need to understand, Jesus says, We, we played a flute for you. You don't want to dance. You don't want to play that. So we said, okay, we'll sing a dirge. We'll play the funeral game. You don't want to play that. And then he turns right around and says, John came not eating and drinking. You say he's got a demon. Jesus comes eating and drinking. You say he's a, he's a, he's a glutton and a drunkard. What's he talking about? We well, see, John, in a sense, came in funeral mode. Think about it. He, he's, he's dressed in camel hairs. I mean, can you imagine? I've never, anybody here ever actually petted a camel? But from what I've seen, I wouldn't want to wear camel hair. I mean, I don't think that would be the softest thing in the world. But the man wears camel hair. He lives out in the desert. He, 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 he basically has nothing to do with normal societal relationships, does he? He's out there eating locust and wild honey. And, 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 and beyond that, he's talking about the axe being laid at the root of the tree. He's calling people, you bunch of brood of vipers. He, he's saying bring... I mean, he's preaching hellfire and damnation. You see, he's in funeral mode, is he not? And you see, in that day, I'm sure it, would, it was no different that day. They looked out there and some people said, that dude is weird. I mean, they saw him and said, that guy is weird. But they go beyond that. They go beyond indifference and they move into criticism and they say, you know what? He's got a demon. He's got a demon. He's not like us. He must be demon-possessed. Right? They, could, they, they wanted nothing to do with that, and he comes in funeral mode. But then you turn around, and Jesus comes in wedding mode. Jesus comes, man, he, he's not like John at all. Right? He's going into people's houses. He's eating with them. Right? He's going to weddings, is he not? At the wedding of Cana, where he did his, where he did his first uh, 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 miracle. He's going to weddings. He's going to people's houses. He... he um, he tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, come on down. I'm going to go to your house. Let's go to your house and eat supper. I mean, he's, he's interacting with people. He's, he's socially involved, right? I mean, he, he's, he's, I mean he's, he's in Pharisees' houses. He's in Nicodemus' tax collectors' houses. He, he's interacting with prostitutes and sinners and all of this. He's in wedding mode. And by the way, 
that's not just me saying that. Jesus himself said, right, how can my disciples fast when the bridegroom is here? He actually compared himself. I, I, this is wedding mode. This is, this, is, this is a happy time. Man, everything you've been looking for for centuries is, is standing right in front of you. Let's celebrate, right? So, and they look at him, and not only, not only are they indifferent to his message, but they also criticize, do they not? They have to push him down. Oh, he's a drunk. He's a glutton. He hangs out with sinners. To ignore him. Got nothing to do with him. See what Jesus is saying, how do I liken this generation? No matter how the gospel comes, no matter how it's presented to you, you can't be satisfied. No matter how the truth comes, if it comes like John in funeral mode, you reject it and you criticize it. So we turn around and we give it to you in wedding mode. We give it to you in a celebratory mode. Right? And you reject it and you criticize it. What do I, how do I like in this generation? You can't just not be satisfied. You're impossible to please. No matter what we do, you criticize and you reject. You criticize and you reject. See, that's what this is all about. Now, I, I want to ask this question today. How do we apply this to ourselves? Right? I read a book. Um, in fact, I gave it to Mom a while ago. It's, it's called A Plea for Preaching. And I read it this week, and it was talking about, it's by different authors, and each one writes a chapter on preaching. And, of course, teaching would, be, it would, be, would fall along those same lines. And, um, and there was a quote from, from R.C. Sproul. And when R.C. Sproul gets up in front of a seminary class and, and he's getting ready to teach, he says, one of the things he says to them is this. He says, don't think that I'm here today just to deliver information. He says, I'm here to capture your heart. And one of the things they were saying about preaching is, is preachers have to be faithful to this word. You don't put in your, your opinions, you don't put in your likes or your dislikes. You get up here and you preach the word, the unadulterated word of God. That's what you do. But at the same time, you have to connect with people's hearts. Right? That's what a good preacher does. And I saw that in that book, I guess, with all these great men saying this. It's not just about... Hearing the Word of God, it's about connecting with people. How do I apply that? Remember what we said when we started. There's two, there's two reactions to the Word of God. One is, I'm going to hear it, but I'm going to reject it. I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to apply it. But the other re reaction is, not only am I going to hear it, but I'm going to apply it inside my heart. So whenever we come in here, and I realized this week, and I wanted to say this, is that you know, we come here, and I, and I appreciate you guys coming so much. You, every Sunday, you're here. You're, you're under the Word of God. I think that's an awesome thing. But the fact is, is we've got to be, if we're just getting head knowledge, and it's not getting down into our heart, then in effect, we're just rejecting what we hear. We're doing our duty. It's a nice time. It's good fellowship. But God wants that Word to go into our mind and get down deep inside of us where it begins to change the way that we live. So when Jesus tells this parable, and he says, how do I liken this generation? You're like a bunch of kids that you call out to your playmates and, and let's play the wedding game. I don't want to do that. Let's play the funeral game. Well, I don't want to do that. He says, that's how you are. He says, John comes in funeral mode. He brings the truth to you. You reject and criticize. Jesus comes. He brings the truth in wedding mode and celebratory mode. He's eating and drinking and going into your houses, and you reject and criticize that. You're impossible to please. Now, 
you and I, it's, see, it's so easy to sit here and say, well, that's not me. That's not me. But now look at what Jesus says next. Turn back and look at verse 20. Jesus says, then. And this is the reason I wanted to come out of Matthew, because Matthew brings this story in. I don't think Luke does, and I think this is so important. Jesus says, then, which means this occurred immediately after that. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it is for you. And you, Capernaum, you, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. If I threw out the name Sodom this morning, pretty much everybody could tell me the story, right? Everybody knows Sodom. What we don't know so much about is these other two cities that Jesus talks about, which is Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were west of the Sea of Galilee, um, uh, kind of northwest of Jerusalem up on the coast. They were cities that were settled by the Phoenician Empire. And, and, and some of you probably remember studying the Phoenician Empire in high school. And um, they were a seafaring people. And so they, they, they established cities all the way around the Mediterranean. And they always established these cities on the coast because that's what they did. They were kind of like the Vikings were. You know, they, they went places in ships. That's how, they, that's how they navigated. That's how they moved around. And so the Phoenicians established these two cities on the, on the west coast. I guess it would be modern-day Syria today. And these two cities were, were known for two things. They were well known for two things. One was their immorality, and the other was their worship of Baal. They were, they were pagan worshipers, and they were as immoral as they come. You remember we talked about Corinth in our study, how Corinth was also a seaport, and how anytime you're a seaport, you got people coming in from other lands and other cultures, and it was kind of like Vegas. Anything, you know, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. You... It was, a, it was just anything goes in those, in those cities. Well, Tyre and Sidon was like that. Beyond that, they did a couple of things that really got on God's nerves, God's nerves and that was in, in Ezekiel. In fact, they are, there are prophecies against Tyre and Sidon, I believe in Ezekiel, uh, in Amos, uh, in Joel, um, and at least one or two others that I can't remember right now. And one of the things they did is they captured Jews and sold them into slavery. Isaiah, or I think Ezekiel talks about that. I know Amos talks about that. And I believe Joel talks about that. They would actually raid into Israel. They would capture Jews, and then they would go sell them off to the Edomites and other, other people. So there's, there's multiple prophecies about Tyre and Sidon. So remember, they're Gentile cities, right? They're not Jewish cities. These are Gentile cities. They're known for their immorality, and they're known for their, for their worship of Baal. And so you get into the Old Testament... And you just start seeing these prophecies against Tyre and Sidon. And one of the most interesting prophecies, and I learned this several years ago. I taught a, um, when I was leading the youth group here, I taught a, a four-week series on the Amazing Bible. And one of the things that I wanted the kids to see was how you can trust this word. That things that were said 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, how they came true. 
And one of the interesting prophecies is in the book of Ezekiel. And again, I apologize for forgetting my computer or, or you would have it there. But in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesies against Tyre and Sidon. And this is what he says. He says basically in a paraphrase, I'm going to destroy you. You're this mighty city. You're this great seaport. You're this cultural city. You're, you're rich beyond anything. I mean, and they were very, very rich cities. And God says, I'm going to destroy you. In fact, I'm going to destroy you so bad that one day fishermen... Now listen to this. This is the prophecy. One day fishermen will lay their nets out where your city once was. They'll lay their nets out to dry. That's how utterly I'm going to lay you down. That was the prophecy in Ezekiel made a long time ago. Probably 2,800, 3,000 years ago. Well, an interesting thing happened... Um, Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, God says, I'm going to send from the, wherever Nebuchadnezzar came from, from the east, I'm going to bring a king from the east. And, and Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon comes over, and they basically lay waste to this city. Okay? It's so bad that the people of Tyre and Sidon, what they end up doing is they take the rubble. This is really interesting. They, they could do this years ago. They actually, they're a seaport. They're on the land. They, they destroy the city so bad that when they leave, the, the residents that are left, they take the rubble and they build a causeway out to an island. And they move the whole city out to this island. And that city stays there on that island for another two or three, four hundred years. I forget what it was. And, and anybody looking at that would think, well, it almost came true, but not quite. But then this guy named Alexander the Great comes along. Everybody remembers Alexander the Great with the Greek Empire. He lays siege to that city, and he destroys it again. And two or three other kings come against it two times. And, and, and I read it there, and this is where I'm bringing this all to. I read a textbook printed in 1998, and again, I had it all up on my computer. This is a high school textbook talking about the Phoenician Empire, and this is what the professor said in the high school textbook. He says this, and he has no, by the way, it's got nothing to do with the Bible or anything. But in this high school textbook, when it describes the city of Tyre, it literally says that today, if you go there, it's a place, it's, a, it's like a bald rock where fishermen lay their nets out to dry. See, that's what I was telling the kids. I mean, this is a prophecy. God says through Ezekiel, I'm going to destroy you so bad that fishermen will just lay their nets to dry. And in 1998, a high school textbook is written, and it says literally that's what happens over there today. It's just a big, bald rock where they lay their nets out to dry. So see, let's go back to our parable. We don't think much about Tyre and Sodom. We all know about Sodom. But it, again, it was an immoral, pagan, Baal-worshipping city that God chose, to, uh, God chose to destroy. Okay, Let's go back and read that one more time. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works that had done, been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, you've got to understand, who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews. He's talking to people of God. He's talking to people who have the Old Testament, who knew that prophecy. They knew how bad Tyre and Sidon were. They knew how immoral they were. They knew, they knew that they had sold had captured Jews and sold them into slavery. They knew all this about those cities. And see, when you looked at Tyre and Sidon, they would have been the epitome to the Jews 
of a Baal-worshipping, prideful, arrogant, avaricious Gentile city. Everybody with me? They would have looked at that city and like, yeah, God took them down. And Jesus turns right around and says, in the day of judgment, it'll be better for them that it's going to be for you. Now, why? Their sins were bad, by the way. Tyre and Sidon, they, they're, remember, pagan worshipers, Baal worshipers, uh, capturing people, selling them into slavery. They, they, I mean, you name it, they did it. And Jesus stands in front of the Jews and says, it'll be more tolerable for them than it will be for you. Why? Why? Was, by the way, were, were, were Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin, were they more sinful than those cities? No. Not at all. But you see, what, what, what they did is they rejected the truth. They rejected the truth. Jesus said if the works that had been done in that city, had, uh, the works that had been done in you had been done in that city, they would have repented. But you just keep rejecting me. John comes as a, in funeral mode, you reject and criticize. I've come and I've come in a wedding mode, you reject and criticize. And because you reject, God himself is standing right in front of you. The truth is right in front of you, and you're rejecting, and you're rejecting, and you're rejecting, and you're rejecting, and because of that, it'll be better on the day of judgment. I'll, be, I'll tolerate them. By the way, if you don't think that there's levels of judgment, you need to read what Jesus says. It'll be more tolerable for them than it's going to be for you. I'm going to hold you to a higher standard because of the works that was done. You saw dead men raised. You saw limbs grow back. You saw deaf people hear. You saw men for, who for 30 years had sat at the feet of the temple rise up and jump and dance. You saw those things. You saw all that and you rejected it and you criticized it. It'll be more tolerable for them. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, do I have to spell it out? Is there a generation that has more access to truth than we do? Anybody? There, there's not a generation. I've said this before. You can, I can get on my phone, and I, I've, got, I've got... It's like having the whole li world's library. I've got every commentary. I've got, I've got truth after truth after truth after truth. We've not only had the works, we not only know the works that were done in Bethsaida and Chorazin, but we know the works that have been done now for 2,000 years. I mean, we've got the history of the church. We've got all of this stuff out in front of us. Are we rejecting it? Are we criticizing it? There's a, there's a place where Paul says, be very careful, because when you stand, you might fall, does he not? You see, we can't take anything for granted. We can't think, well, I'm, you know, here I am at River of Life, and I got this, my trusty Bible. Listen, you got truth, and now you're answerable to it. That's what he was telling Bethsaida. That's what he was telling Chorazin. That's what he was telling Capernaum. You, you've seen things. You've heard things. Things have been revealed to you that wasn't revealed to them. So if you reject the higher level of truth, there's a higher level of responsibility and a higher level of judgment. You see, I, I know I say this to you guys all the time. I will answer for every time I stand in front of you and preach or teach, I'll answer for that. Paul says, don't, many of you don't aspire to be teachers. Don't aspire to be a teacher. Why? Because teachers have higher judgment. They're, hired, they're held to a higher responsibility. 
be very careful before you do that because you're going to answer for what you teach. But in the same way as listeners, are we not answerable for what we hear? See, that's the whole point of this parable. It's a whole point with where we started. Everybody here that hears the truth has a responsibility. Do I hear it and reject it? Or do I hear it and I act on it and apply it to my life? I, I don't know what Pastor Henry's... Well, I do know what Pastor Henry's going to preach on because he told me. I mean, he's got a wonderful sermon today. But it's not enough for us to come in here and hear this and say, Wow, amen, brother. You got that right, brother. It, it, that's not enough. It's responsible for us to take that truth and apply it to our life because if we reject it, we're going to be held to a higher responsibility than those who have, have not heard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for um, how you are just faithful. Even when we're not, you are faithful. And I just praise you for that. You are a wonderful, uh, wonderful sovereign God. And Father, as the truth goes out today, Lord, I pray that everybody here would just realize, like I did this week, how responsible we are or we're going to be held for the truth that we hear. Let us not hear truth and just think, you know, I've heard that before and let it go in one ear and right out the other. Or let us not hear truth and say, you know, that was an interesting message. That's all great. But let us hear the truth and then ask the Holy Spirit to apply that to our hearts and apply that to our life so it changes us, that it conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. That is our destiny. Lord, help each one of us to walk worthy of that calling. We pray for Pastor Henry today as he steps into the pulpit. We pray that, um, Father, that the words, the truth would, would flow out of him in a clear and a concise manner. And, and God, that the people that are here, not just in this room, but the ones that will be coming later, will hear it not just, as he keeps saying, not just as the words of a man, but as the very words of God. And they won't criticize it, they won't reject it, but they'll accept it and apply it and be changed because of it. We thank you and we praise you for all you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.